I can get, you know, three minutes of Lady Gaga in, that's about it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's kind of what it comes down to these days. This is Ben Pritchett with the Avalanche Hour podcast. You are tuned in to episode 3.14 of the Avalanche Hour podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by TAS Gazex, an avalanche of solutions. And our good friends at 10 Barrel Brewing, drink beer outside. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. I record this intro in beautiful Chamonix, France. It's my first time over here and all I can say is wow, what a mecca. My wife and I are having a great time skiing and exploring the mountains with some great friends. If you're just tuning into the show for the first time and maybe you stumbled upon this episode, I'll tell you a little bit about what I'm trying to do on this podcast. I learn from my experiences, sometimes from my successes and sometimes from my mistakes. I also learn from other people's experiences, good or bad, and I feel like we can all learn from one another. That's why I started this podcast, to create an open forum for people to share their experiences near and far from avalanche involvements. I hope that this arena is free of Monday morning quarterbacking and subjective judgment. When we look at accidents and close calls, we can draw upon weather, snowpack, and human factor trends that may have contributed to the event. We can all learn from these trends. Now I come to a point where I reflect on whether the podcast is serving this purpose at the present time or not. I would say yes and no. I have not gotten as many inquiries from people involved in close calls or accidents as I would have hoped. I know this will take some time to catch on, so what do I do while I wait for these individuals to come forward? Well, I go skiing, of course. But I also seek out other avalanche professionals to interview for the show, whether they are forecasters, ski patrollers, guides, or educators. I hit the road for a month in the fall, and I try to show up to a couple regional snow and avalanche workshops. And then I set up a bunch of interviews with people who I think could share some of their knowledge and stories with the community. The 2018-19 season has been highlighting some great individuals from mostly Colorado and Northwest Montana, as that's where I spent most of my road trip time this past fall. Thanks to the generous support of TAS Gazex and 10 Barrel Brewing, I'm able to commit time and energy to record, edit, and produce what I think is becoming a better and better product. The episodes are released on the 1st and the 15th of every month, starting in October, and run usually through May or June. I should also mention the previous support from Black Diamond. I'm not sure what happened with this relationship, but all of a sudden my emails stopped being answered by the marketing department. No hard feelings there, BD. Thanks for the support you provided me in the beginning. And a big thanks to Rocco and Tom over there who always answer my emails. As I've said from the beginning, This is our community's podcast. Please engage me by dropping an email to theavalanchehourpodcast at gmail.com or you can direct message me on Instagram or Facebook. We are at theavalanchehourpodcast. Let me know what you like and dislike about the show. What's your favorite intro-outro music? 
Do you like that I always choose different music, or would you rather have a dedicated intro beat? Do you want to hear me hone in on a specific subject with any guests? You have an idea for a great guest. I want to hear it. I will respond to you. Maybe not in the most timely manner all the time, but it will happen. Thanks for those of you who have already engaged with me up until now. Appreciate you. Today's episode features Ben Pritchett, guide, educator, forecaster. Ben has worn many hats in the snow and avalanche world. I first met Ben during an airy instructor trainer course and was immediately impressed by his depth of knowledge, humility, and calm demeanor. I'm sure many of my listeners have been involved in some sort of avalanche education that Ben has taught or at least had a hand in developing. Ben hangs his hat in beautiful Crested Butte, Colorado, where we recorded this interview in the Van Studio. I'll let him introduce himself some more in the coming minutes. Here we go, dropping in with Ben Pritchett. Welcome to the show, Ben. Thanks for taking the time to sit down and chat today. Yeah, thanks, Caleb. Love being in Crested Butte. I have a couple other interviews here, and I kind of always forget how rad this place is. You guys are pretty lucky to live here, I think. Yeah, I've fallen in love with it. It's been my home for just over 22 years, and uh, I every summer I go places I've never been before, and every winter I ski lines I've never skied before. So it's you know 80 percent of the county is public land, so it's from a recreational standpoint just a nearly infinite playground. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you know we're recording this October 18th course it'll air sometime this winter but uh you, you, people are already skiing around crested butte it sounds like mm-hmm. got an early shot of snow here we did we uh schofield the the kind of big orographic focal point between us and marble is already over three inches of water for the season starting october one wow so yeah it's it's pretty dense up there it's settled down to under two feet of snow it's i think down to 14, 15 inches of snow on the ground at the moment with three inches of water, which for us is a is a great way to start. Unfortunately, I'm sure we're going to get some dry spells between now and when it really counts. Right. Is this typical for around here this time of year? Oh, gosh. You know, there's been plenty of days in late November when I'm still on my mountain bike in the mm-hmm. high country. Mm-hmm. And there's been plenty of times where I've been skiing powder from the beginning of October and never looked back. So, um, you know, I think we're just right at that sweet spot in North America where the temperatures can go either way and we can wind up with fall rain or fall snow and it makes all the difference. Mm-hmm. Sometimes our season starts now. Other times our season really doesn't get going until mid to late December. Mm. Yeah. So some of the snow up high could be, it could be the monster in the basement later in the season or, or perhaps well, we'll get some uh, more consistent snowfall and and uh, what do you think? Yeah, <laughs> I I think the odds certainly are stacked against us. I think we're we're building weak layers right now. Yeah, um, Art Mears at one point he told me that locally here, one in seven years we get a non-faceted base. Wow. And um, I remember the fall of '06, we had three weekends in a row in early December. That year, I I rode one of our local mountain bike trails, 401, on Thanksgiving. And then the first weekend of December, we got six feet of snow. Mm. 
And the second week of December, we got another three to five feet of snow. And then the third weekend, we got another several feet of snow. And that season all fell on dirt, completely non-faceted base. It was incredible. Um, 96, 97 was another year like that. And uh, what Art told me was that essentially one in seven years, we get a non-faceted base. Mm. So, And those are the dream years, huh? Those are the rare dream years. <laughs> I, in the last years that I've seen, it's only happened twice. So yeah. uh, we're due for another. <laughs> All, right. <laughs> All right. Well, Ben, uh, give us your background and int- kind of introduce yourself. Let us know how you got to where you are today and some of the... <laughs> You've worn many hats within the snow and avalanche world, so uh, maybe highlight some of those as well. Yeah. Um, well, I, I live here in Crested Butte. Most of my professional career has been living here, though um, I've traveled a fair amount with work to, to many of the mountain ranges around the U.S. Um, you know, I kind of got started with it all. Uh, I went to high school in Denver and went to civil engineering school in Boulder for a few years. And, um, in that time I started backcountry skiing around the front range up at Loveland and Berthoud pass and, um, skiing out of bounds from the ski areas there in summit County and Eagle County. And, um, I had a real close call inbounds in a ski area where, uh, I was jumping off of a cornice during a huge storm. Cornice broke, triggered the slope underneath me as I was still landing on the slope. I don't know if I triggered it or the cornice fall triggered it, but um, I landed in a bunch of powder and suddenly off it went and the whole slope fractured in a two or two and a half foot deep slab and uh, took me down slope. Ended up lawn darted in, buried from my head to my like mid torso with my legs sticking out. And... um, kicked and wriggled and knocked my way out of the the hole and ended up losing a pole. And, um, I just left the ski area. I thought I'd done something wrong and was scared. And so, uh, my friend that I was skiing with, who was waiting for me at the bottom of the chairlift, he had no idea. And we just boogied out. And that was kind of my first real involvement in an avalanche. And, and, uh, I didn't really know too much what to think about it. It was scary for sure. Um, and then I, I didn't really think too much more about avalanches. I didn't have any avalanche equipment, though I was skiing Berthoud Pass and Loveland Pass off the highway. Um, I'm sure there were lots of people that did have equipment, but it seemed pretty common at the time to not have equipment. Um, and then when I moved here, I, I ended up leaving college. I was studying civil engineering and I was working for the Sierra Club. It was a bit of a conflict, learning to build roads and bridges and dams and at the same time trying to keep them from being built. And I was conflicted, dropped out of school, moved to Crested Butte. Um, I went back and got a degree in wildlife biology. And while I was in school at Western in Gunnison, I had uh, two two close friends Matt Nodden and uh, Casey McKinney, who died in an avalanche at Cumberland Pass. And um, there was a a third fatality that day as well, a group of six. And it was supposed to be a group of seven. I was meant to be with them that day, but we had an organic chemistry test. And so I bailed out to study for the test at the last minute. I was just like, God, I'm not ready. 
So I stayed home that day and didn't go. And um, those six guys got caught in an avalanche. Three of them died. And that that coupled with being caught in an avalanche a couple of years, few years before myself, really gave me the motivation to get involved with avalanche education in a big way. And so at that point, I, I started taking avalanche courses. I got avalanche equipment, learned how to use it. Um, I started interning with what was then Crested Butte Mountain Guides and um, and then was a part of the Crested Butte Avalanche Center when it first started. Uh, the first season, I was not involved. It was um, two guys, and, and it was not yet an incorporated entity, um, and it was pretty low-key. And then uh, the first season that we were really doing published advisories that we were writing, uh, I was involved as one of the forecasters. I think I was 23 at the time, and handed a ridiculously long leash for somebody who really didn't deserve to be in that role. Um, but I learned a lot from it and stayed with the Crested Butte Avalanche Center from uh, up until the spring of 2006. Um, and then I transitioned over to the Colorado Avalanche Info Center and worked as the education coordinator from there uh, from 06 until 2012. Uh, during that whole time, I was I was also earning some money as a ski guide. Um, so I've kind of maintained an AMGA ski guide certification and have continued to guide throughout my whole career. Um, there's only been a handful of seasons where I was guiding full time as my only job. Most of the time guiding has been a secondary job behind my, my other work, either with the CBAC, the CAIC or ARI. Um, from 2002 until 2016, uh, I was the program director at ARI and started out in a very small role with Tom Murphy there. I was kind of doing project work for him and, and ultimately grew to, to become uh, one of the core staff members there of a, of a small team. Um, so yeah, those have been kind of my main, my main roles over the years. Um, I came back to work with the Crested Butte Avalanche Center last winter as the director there. Spent spent one season with the CBAC, and this coming winter, um, I'll be working with the Colorado Avalanche Info Center, forecasting for the Gunnison and Sawatch zones. Awesome. Any? I thought I remember you saying that you'd ski patrolled some too at the mm. hill. I did a little ski patrolling, mm. um, not much, yeah. but uh, yeah, I, I was a part timer at Crested Butte. Right. Never, never really became a, a ski patroller in the sense that I, I was only ever a part-timer. So yeah. kind of hard to consider myself one of the boys when I was only there occasionally. Gotcha. Well, it's, that's certainly quite the quite the career of, of forecasting and being involved in avalanche education, Ben. Um, since we are in Crested Butte and, and uh, it's kind of the birthplace of Aerie, I was hoping you could maybe talk a little bit about how Aerie came to be and um, some of the, how it evolved over time. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, it really started, three people were the, the focal point for Airy initially. It was, um, Tom Murphy, Carl Clausen, and Jean Paviard. And those three guys were bound together through kind of a, a common 
cause, if you will. They they basically were. Uh, Carl Clausen was here in the United States from Canada, representing the IFMGA and was auditing the AMGA, which at that point was not yet a member of the IFMGA. And so Colin Zacharias and Carl Clausen were, were the auditors coming to look at the AMGA's programs. And one of the deficiencies in the U.S. guiding program was a lack of standards in avalanche education. So um, Jean Paviard, who owned the guide service here in Crested Butte, then called Adventures to the Edge, and his employee, Tom Murphy, um, worked with um, Carl to create some kind of a standardized curriculum. It, it literally started as, as a unified set of slides and overhead transparencies. And it was a standard within a very small team of people. And that was in the late 90s. And by, um, I became pretty deeply involved in 2002. And uh, by the time we were into the late 2000s, um, Tom Murphy was there, myself, Brian Lazar, and Colin Zacharias. The four of us were kind of the, the core staff. And um, we grew the number of providers from originally one up to over a hundred providers by, by the late nineties might've been right around 2010 when we crested a hundred providers. So it was a, a really dramatic decade of growth. Um, and Aerie today, I think it sits somewhere in the neighborhood of 110, 115 course providers nationally and internationally. Um, you know, for me personally, the, the heyday of the organization, the, um, the good old days for me was definitely the late nineties working with, with my mentors, Colin Zacharias and Tom Murphy and Brian Lazar. Um, the four of us made a really strong team. We had different skills and complemented each other really well. And, um, I think the organization was thriving for a long time under that leadership group. Um, in 2010, uh, Brian transitioned from Airy into the deputy director role at the CAIC. And uh, that was sort of the first significant leadership sh shift. Um, then in 2014, 2014, Tom Murphy retired, which I think was an incredible transition for him, one he'd been looking forward to for a long time. Um, and that started kind of an era of somewhat steady transition ever since. Um, you know, Murph was one of the founders and, and was truly the lifeblood of the organization from, from 98 when it started up until 2014. And, um, when he left, I think the organization has, has struggled to find the same grounding that it had with Murph there. So we've been through two executive directors there at Airy since. Um, we had a, a director in 15, 16, uh, and then another 17, 18. And, and I think this fall, Airy's undergoing a, yet another search for an ED. Mm -hmm. So the organization's um, you know, had an incredible period of growth, had some change in leadership, and, and, um, and today I think 
the rapid growth coupled with the change in the industry overall with the whole pro rec split, it's led to an unsettled period in, in Aries history, but I'm, I'm looking forward to, um, some new leadership there that hopefully will bring in a, the next, the next golden era for Aries. All right. So those guys, a big part of creating area was to define like what is a level one avalanche course, right? At that time, when when area came about, there were no standards put out by the AAA. Is that correct? Yeah, it was 2007 when the AAA mm-hmm. came out with the the formal course guidelines. So yeah, area had been around 11 years at that point and had created some standards of its own with the um, IFMGA and AMGA. Well, or? they were standards developed within ARI. Mm-hmm. Um, they were developed to help the AMGA have something to point to, to say there are standards in the U S include us in the IFMGA there. We're, we're not as uh, separate and independent and individual as it appears. We actually do have some standards, not everybody's required to use those standards, but there are some available. And I think that argument was really um, what led, you know, the fact that we did create some standards in education, uh, though they were just standards held by ARI. They were not national or international standards that anyone else was bound to. But the fact that we had the first significant set of standards for the U.S. in avalanche education was... Um, a real milestone. Yeah, certainly a focal point and kind of birthplace of legitimizing both education and the avalanche profession as a whole. Yeah, I mean, avalanche education was far from new. Airy was, in a lot of ways, in a lot of eyes, uh, a latecomer to avalanche mm. education. Um, obviously, Rod Newcomb had been running courses for a long time and, and um, you know, had had they had a bigger reach in terms of numbers of people involved. I think there's no reason why AAI wouldn't have sort of created their own standards that spread across the U.S. I think it was just the fact that they were a private company in one region that constrained them, and and there were other regions that weren't influenced as heavily that Airy came in to help kind of fill that void. Mm-hmm. Um, and so today, you know, I think it's worked out well for the industry at large because now the AAA has helped redefine guidelines that everybody taking a level one or level two course has to follow. And and then more recently, we now have the, the differentiation between recreational and professional courses that um, raises that bar of, of standards even higher so that um, you know, until the, the pro rec split was formalized last year, professional education just sort of went off the top of the scale and, and was still undefined in terms of what the outcomes were. And now that we have skills and proficiencies defined for pro one and pro two course participants, uh, I think it really does move our industry forward and create some legitimacy for the skills that are required to be an avalanche pro. Yeah, I think I think it's a great thing, and um, I think I think the whole industry and individuals are going to benefit from the process, no doubt. Um, so Ben, let's talk about kind of the relationship between the CAIC and CBAC. So the Colorado Avalanche Information Center 
and the Crested Butte Avalanche Center because it's a pretty unique um, relationship. And I didn't really understand it until I talked to Brian Lazar a couple weeks ago about kind of how that came about. So maybe you could speak to that. Sure. Yeah, I was I was around for for the coming about. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, at the time in the late 90s into the very early 2000s, the CAIC was producing three avalanche forecasts. And so um, Crested Butte, we found ourselves here as a community lumped into the central mountain avalanche forecast. And that was the same zone, if you will, that included Summit County and Vail. And um, we had a bit of a a communication void between the CAIC office and the local avalanche operations here in the Gunnison Valley. And so uh, we weren't particularly well represented in the forecasts at that point in time. And and so the CBAC was formed as a nonprofit specifically to provide a local avalanche forecast right here for the Gunnison Valley. Um, literally, the, the whole zone is... Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six valleys. Um, so it's a very small scale avalanche forecast area, um, avalanche advisory area. Um, it was designed to be information available to the public. We really focused on two-way communication. So I could be wrong about this, but but at the time, um, in, in 2003, I believe it was, when we started our observations page, I think we were the first group, the first avalanche center to actually post public observations. So it was, it was a pretty interesting time because at that point, it was not common for the general public to actually have a voice to the rest of the community to say, here's what I saw today in the backcountry. And it was a little uncharted. It was something that possibly might not have even been able to happen through an agency avalanche center. Um, because we were a private nonprofit and, and didn't have as many government constraints, we had more flexibility to try new things. And so we we actually created an observations page where people could talk to each other and share, in addition to the danger rating that came from the forecasters, there could be direct peer-to-peer communication. Mm-hmm. And um, Today, in 2018, I, I don't think there's an avalanche center out there that doesn't have some mechanism for peer-to-peer communication. So I think that was a, a fairly revolutionary um approach to communication and and one of the things that really made the Crested Butte Avalanche Center quite special at a at a you know at an early age in its lifespan um the Crested Butte Avalanche Center's continued with a nonprofit model and um it grew from essentially a group of ambitious volunteers like I was in the the early 2000s into a, um, an avalanche center with paid staff today. And, um, last winter I, I was lucky enough to, to be the director for that team and lead forecaster and, uh, following in the shoes of Zach guy who moved up to Montana. And, um, you know, the organization's grown dramatically. Just the funding base in and of itself is, is a huge change from where we was when, when it was started up until, uh, where it stands today. 
And how how is it funded? It's uh you know the the line items are are almost exclusively private donations, uh, one after another after another. There's there's a fair number of uh, businesses that are involved as sponsors that that adds up to a good amount, um, but really it's community support. So it's memberships here in this community. It's um, it's businesses in the town. Um, very small amounts of, of grants from local entities, uh, but the vast majority is is a community-supported avalanche center. Mm. So, um, you know, it has a very small forecast area. It, it represents uh, a small portion of the overall Gunnison zone in the CAIC's um, zone tables. So it's a subset. Um, the forecast area is... Is, is a subset of what the CAIC forecasts around it. So as a CAIC forecaster, now you'll still be communicating with the CBAC in, in your observations that, that you're coming up with. Yeah, absolutely. So over the last 15 years, the CBAC and the CAIC communicate with each other on a, on a daily basis. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that'll, that'll continue and hopefully strengthen now that, um, looking into the years ahead. Yeah. Can you speak at all to the relationship between Crested Butte Mountain Resort, uh, Irwin Guides, and some of the other outfitters that are maybe in operating in, in the backcountry here and their relationship with forecasts and observations? And I mean, is there a good working relationship within the Valley? It's a pretty small community. So it is, I yeah. have to imagine everybody knows everybody. Yeah, absolutely. Everybody knows everybody. <laughs> uh, it's small enough that... In all honesty, I think we communicate more frequently in, through informal mechanisms than through formal observation exchange. Mm-hmm. Um, Frank Coffey and John Mortimer, the snow safety and assistant snow safety up at CBMR, um, you know, if I ever see something of interest, I just text them right mm-hmm. away. You know, likewise, if they get some notable result, they're on the horn calling me up. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, the the tight knit nature of our community, the fact that we have a group of avalanche professionals that have all worked together for for literally decades, um, we communicate almost in a faster mechanism than day end operations. Erwin's mm-hmm. um, great; those guys do a, a daily PM form that gets submitted to the avalanche centers, both the CAIC and CBAC, and um, they're very forward about, you know, sharing what's going on up there. And so, uh, yeah, we have a really active information exchange. It's, it's happening behind closed doors. Those observations are generally not made public, which I think is common for most operations. You know, that's, um, that's kind of the, the norm for doing, doing avalanche work. You, you don't share all of your control results with the general public, but, um, the general public can rest assured that that information is being shared freely amongst the pros. And then being digested and put out into the public bulletin. Absolutely. Right? The key points. Yeah, right? absolutely. Um, I, I hear that there's a, there's kind of a little bit of a different weather pattern up in Irwin's area. They get a little bit more snow. Is that true or? Yeah. Yeah. Um, surprisingly, 
it's actually not Irwin that's the ocal, the orographic focal point. It's it's actually up um, right in Paradise Divide. Mm. Uh, Treasure Mountain is sort of the the big dividing benchmark between the the Aspen's Aspen zone to the north, the Marble area northwest, the Kebler area southwest of there, and then the the East River Valley due south of Paradise Divide. And basically, it's a uh, 13,000 foot high point here that stands proud in western Colorado and has valleys running up it from all four westerly facing directions. Mm. Um, and so incredible lift up there, just just phenomenal. We may pick up, you know, six inches, eight inches here in town and easily see two feet or three feet or four feet up at the divide. Wow. Um, it, it, when orographics are driving the storms as they typically are in the winter, um, it, it really is remarkable. It's unfortunate the ski area didn't choose to, <laughs> <laughs> to build up there in the sixties. Um, cause it, it really is a dramatically different snow climate. Mm-hmm. Uh, people, you know, just this past week, like I was saying up at Schofield, they've got three inches of water on the ground up there and and you can still mountain bike right around in downtown Crested Butte right now. So, yeah. um, totally different snow climates, and and uh, that that focal point, uh, Irwin is most definitely along the the margin of that. So they're at the very southern tip of the Ruby Range. At the northern tip of the Ruby Range, ten miles north, is kind of the the highest snowfall area. Uh, Jeff Deems is looking to try and help define the size of that sort of anomalously high snowfall area. Hmm. There's a few of them in Colorado, the up by steamboat. They certainly, the circles are incredibly snowy, the snowiest part of the state. Um, Wolf Creek on average winds up being a really snowy area, though they have maybe a higher degree of variability than the circles. Hmm. Um, and then, you know, third in the state would be that that marble crested butte zone. So we're lucky to have good snow here and um your impressions of what the snowpack might be if you were right around the town of Crested Butte don't have a whole lot to do with what you're gonna be skiing on if you hop on a snowmobile and go six, eight miles up the valleys. Yeah, this is pretty mind boggling to think it can be that dramatically different over a distance of 68 miles is, yeah. is pretty amazing. Yeah, it can go from 70 centimeters of boot pen to the ground <laughs> to, you know, a 210 centimeter rounded snowpack. Yeah. Um, just, yeah, five, eight miles away. Yeah, amazing. So I'm not sure that our snow is any different shade of white than anywhere else. You know, I think everybody wants to be proud of their local area and and uh you'll certainly hear lots of uh lots of pride from crested butians about our deep snowpack but in reality it's um it's a it's just white snow right. same as everywhere else don't or, move don't move here yeah you won't like it <laughs> <laughs> so ben you've done uh quite a bit of forecasting in your career um i'm interested in how you deal with uncertainty when putting out a public bulletin. Because I don't think it's any secret that um, 
sometimes we're not 100% certain. In fact, a lot of times we're not 100% certain. So there is, there remains a lot of uncertainty. So how do you deal with that in conveying that uncertainty to the public? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And one that, um, you know, I, I spent, I think 18 years on the Grand Traverse forecasting team. And, um, you know, that was a pretty, that has been a really fun forecasting job because it's, it's forecasting for just a couple of avalanche paths. It's sending 500 racers with headlamps on through the middle of the night over a mountain range. But ultimately the, the exposure, uh, at least the most significant exposure is really tied to a couple of paths. And so that's a fun forecasting project because the uncertainty can be really um, drilled down because you know exactly the path that you're forecasting for. It's a lot like a ski area in that way. Um, public forecasting, writing advisories where you're dealing with an entire mountain range, obviously that that level of spatial variability across the range that like we were just talking about between downtown Crested Butte to Paradise Divide and seeing two different complete, completely different snow climates um, can make for avalanche problem lists that are radically different. Um, in the end, as a, as a advisory writer, we're kind of drilling it down. We're summarizing things and we're using a one through five danger scale to provide that rating. Um, one of the most influential, um, concepts for me. Uh, I was teaching a level three course down in Silverton and the, I don't know, maybe it was 2007 or eight. And Chris Landry, who um, uh, came in as a guest, he was running the Center for Snow and Avalanche Studies down at Red Mountain Pass at the time and had previously been forecasting for the, the mine in Marble, Colorado here, just on the other side of Paradise Divide. And Chris came in and, and showed a chart that basically showed the step function, kind of like a staircase of avalanche danger. So you have a plateau at level one, jumps up to moderate level two, jumps up to considerable level three, and you have these staircases. And when you change the ratings, you're taking a step up and down the staircase. But the reality of the danger is that the danger doesn't take these discrete jumps the danger is a smooth curve. And often the smooth curve is cycling up and down much faster than the rate of change of the staircase. We only change the staircase steps once a day, but often the danger changes much more quickly than that. Um, sometimes we feel like the staircase is in exactly the right spot. And this is like perfect example of moderate danger. Other times, um, you wind up feeling like moderate may not quite be enough. And, and, you know, in the early two thousands, the, the paradigm was to take your yellow rose and, and paint a few little orange dots on it to hedge your bets and, um, pockets of considerable pockets of considerable amongst them overall moderate picture. And, and that paradigm has, has, we've moved on from that, I think across the board, um, but today the best approach we have for communicating uncertainty to the public is to, to one, use the sliders 
in describing from the conceptual model the the expected size of avalanches. And so one of the points of uncertainty is how big could these avalanches really be? Um, at times, we're sure that they're only going to be size one to two. Other times, they could be size threes. Um, and we may have the potential for a much broader range of sizes. As an advisory writer with the CBAC last year, we talked about this in our team. And, and at times when the uncertainty is greater, we have to do a lot more in the summaries themselves to describe our own level of confidence and describe the quality and quantity of information we're working with. There's times where we're not able to get into certain parts of the mountain range. Maybe the valleys are melted out and the high peaks are choked and we can't get there. Um, or maybe it's just been so stormy we haven't actually been able to validate our own forecasts. We don't know how big the avalanches have been running because we can't see them. Um, so when we're faced with times of higher uncertainty, it becomes really important to describe that in the summary. Mm. Um, I, I think that's fundamentally right now, that's our best tool is to, to use the text boxes where we can actually say, you know, right now our certainty is higher or lower because the weather forecast is more or less uncertain. Mm. You know, we may talk about the trends and say, um, today we're going into the day at this place. We have a weather forecast for this and we expect the danger to rise to this. If the weather ends up running 50 miles north of us, we're never going to get that storm and the danger rating's never going to get there. Mm -hmm. Um, so today we don't have, um, popular, uh, confidence descriptors applied to, um, the danger ratings or to the avalanche problems in the advisories. Um, but that's certainly a place where we could grow in the future. Um, the conceptual model that was published a few years ago, um, Grant Statham and crew, that model was such an industry changing document. It's one we've been utilizing since, you know, about 2010, but now that it's formally published, we have a reference piece for any forecaster in any discipline to use the same vocabulary, use the same scales, and really go through a, a quite a similar process to analyze data and, and evaluate the, the current threat. Can you talk just a little bit more and maybe kind of describe for some of the listeners of the show who might not know what the conceptual model is. Yeah. Um, the conceptual model w grew out of, um, the ADFAR group. So it was a, um, it was a working group designed in the late two thousands to revise the North American danger scale. And one of the critical inputs to the danger scale is, well, how do you arrive at a given rating? So before they could change the ratings themselves or codify the ratings themselves, there, there was a sense amongst some of the authors, um, Grant Statham was sort of the project lead for it. Um, but there, there's a whole list of notable people involved in that, me not being one of them. Um, they decided that they really needed to to a degree, codify the process of how the ratings were applied before the ratings were then codified themselves. 
And that process of, of uh, analyzing likelihood and size and sensitivity and distribution um, was coined the conceptual model of avalanche forecasting. And so that was uh, published, I believe it was 2016, I think it was the fall of 2016 that, that uh, the paper was formally published. Great piece, huge reference piece. I think in any professional avalanche course you would take today, that paper would be um, a pretty central focal point. So before that, you would you just put low, moderate, considerable, high, extreme into a hat and just pick one out? <laughs> <laughs> no, but there were uh, a fair amount of uh, different opinions on how yeah. to apply the ratings and and. Um, not to say that's gone away, <laughs> uh, but at least we have some guidance on how to put the inputs into the system in a consistent approach. And we've got definitions to point to, and, and we have ways to calibrate ourselves. Mm -hmm. Brian Lazar did an interesting ISSW paper in 2016 that looked at a bunch of different forecasters all faced with the, I think it was nine different um circumstances that had different weather events and avalanche patterns and uh, they were they were actual events um, that were written down and then without knowing the specifics forecasters had to a bunch of different forecasters had to come up with a a rating and what brian found was that there was a fair amount of variability from forecaster to forecaster and and possibly more variability than is in the best interest of public safety. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, that, that's been a, a, I don't know if pet peeve is the right word, but, a um, a project for me being involved with the airy level three programs for a long time. One of my goals was to help forecasters across lots of different disciplines apply the conceptual model more consistently so mm -hmm. that, our stop signs really are the same shape and color. And that when you cross advisory area boundaries, whether that's the uh, forecast generated within a ski area to the surrounding national forest, or whether that's uh, between different avalanche centers or between a, a mine operation, if we have common vocabulary, if we have a common process, it gives us a great deal of, of, uh, transparency and it gives us a much better opportunity to measure the accuracy of our forecasts if we if we don't do it the same then it's really hard to tell if we're getting it right or wrong um, so you know we're not there yet as an industry i don't think we've we've solved this issue just by having the conceptual model but i do think it's um, you know swag was a huge step forward because it helped create standards in the tools that we use as observers. And following that, the conceptual model created standards in the process that we use to arrive at the ultimate communication tool, the, um, the forecasts, whether that's a, a, a regional advisory or whether that's a very um, project-specific forecast like like that Grand Traverse forecasting mm -hmm. project or, or a ski area forecast. Um, you know, I think maybe the next step for us, the thing that, that isn't quite resolved is the 
the ultimate public communication tool, the stop signs themselves. Um, what what the recreational users actually see when they go to an Avalanche Center website. Um, we still have some variability across different centers, and some of that's uh, rooted in our rugged individualism as Americans. Uh, some of that may actually be valuable for, for different target audiences in different regions around the country. But, um, but ultimately I, I think in the realm of public safety, personally, I, I think consistency is a, something that we want to strive for. Hmm. I had asked you earlier before we started recording what, what you thought the biggest issue facing our community today was. And this is certainly kind of what, what you said, right? Yeah. The, the yeah. continuity amongst or between different forecast centers and, and in that public message to especially the recreationist backcountry traveler. Yeah. You know, the, the years that I worked at Aerie, um, I really had an incredible opportunity to travel. I ended up working in uh, Alaska, Washington, Idaho, uh, Oregon, California, Nevada, Utah, Wyoming, Colorado. I think Montana was the only Western state I didn't work in. Um, and, oh, sorry, New Mexico. Um, <laughs> didn't work there either. <laughs> or Arizona. Mm. Um, and then also made a few trips up to New England and, and really got a chance to see avalanche operations in lots of different regions around the U.S. And, and got to know many of the regional variations personally, both through the personalities and through the, the forecasting systems in place within um, ski areas, within guide services, within mechanized operations, within um, agency and non-agency avalanche centers. Um, and just seeing that amount of variability that has existed in our community for a long time, I, I think that's, that's a root concern for us as an industry, because when we have so much variability, um, it, it doesn't allow us to communicate as well with each other. And I think it undermines to a degree our credibility. It, it keeps us in a black art as opposed to keeping us in a, a modern day profession or trade where um, best practices are clearly defined. Mm. And so I think we're making great headway there. And, and I think the, the pro rec split in avalanche education is a great avenue for us to start training up and coming avalanche pros in a, in a much more consistent way. So uh, the fact that the AAA decided to, um, enact this pro rec split. I think it it speaks directly to that need. Right. And I'm excited to see the see where our industry is in 20 years. Yeah, I think I think it's going to happen more rapidly, like in the next five to 10 years. Right. Like the ball is rolling, and it's only going to start rolling faster. That's my take on it, at least. Um, and uh, we, we've got a great model just with our neighbors to the north, you know, yeah, they've seemed to have figured it out. No yeah. Without a doubt. I mean, having initially Carl Clausen at Airy and then um, Colin Zacharias mm. the last 15 years or so, um, those two guys have been very influential in Airy and, and as a 
cascading influence from Ari into many other people. Certainly those two have been big mentors of mine. Um, and a lot of their worldview of, you know, how to manage uh, risk in avalanche country has been shaped by the culture that they're in, in Canada. And that, that's certainly crept into a lot of my outlook. Mm -hmm. So my, uh, you know, my bias to trend towards consistency and collaboration and standards, um, I, I think it would be impossible to hide that that has been influenced from our neighbors to the north. Right. Well, it's a good model for sure. Um, ben, any close calls or near misses in your career that you'd care to share a quick story that, uh, that you learn from and you think the rest of the community might be able to learn from? Yeah, well, I, I mentioned the mm. the one as a youngster. Uh, that one was just total ignorance. <laughs> and you were in a ski area. I was in a ski area, and, and yeah, just that one I don't think really counts as, as one to learn too much from. It was the the unknown unknowns at that stage of the game. Um, you know, last winter I had a pretty interesting day out. Uh, it was myself and a couple of other forecasters, one from the Crested Butte Avalanche Center and then one from the CAIC. And the three of us were doing field work together up at um, it's an area called the Purple Palace outside of Crested Butte up near Paradise Divide. And a few days before, there had been a somewhat dramatic photograph taken of a, an avalanche triggered in motion. And um, the person who triggered it could be seen in the photograph they were skiing off the slab the slab was shattering behind them you could the photo happened to be taken really close up and you could see the expression on his face and um you know got a fair amount of airplay um and so we went up to go investigate the nature of that avalanche and the weak layer and um the avalanche was described as um happening very quickly. So that day, a bunch of people in the area had reported other avalanches. Um, and in the subsequent time between when the, that dramatically, uh, documented avalanche and when we went up there, there'd been numerous other reports of avalanches up in that area. And they all came with the same sort of description, which was, a dramatically faster avalanche than what you might expect. And, and based on that description alone, myself and the other forecasters, we all kind of walked in thinking we were going surface whore hunting, um, that the avalanches were releasing on a surface whore weak layer. And that we walked into the day with the bias that that's what we were, we, we were literally going to hunt surface whore. Um, mainly because of how these descriptions were all so similar. We knew there had been a surface ore layer deposited, but most of the avalanche activity in the area had actually been uh, repeat performer paths. And um, so it was fascinating. We went up there thinking that we, we knew right where this group had gone and skied. We knew which path it was. We knew right where they entered. Um, we went looking for the surface whore layer and we were now 10 days or two weeks after the original event. So there'd been some storms in the interval 
And what we assumed was that the, uh, the surface ore layer had been buried. Um, so we went looking to see if we could find that surface ore layer. And sure enough, we, we found that surface ore layer hiding down in, the, in some sheltered areas outside of the avalanche paths that we were going to visit. And because the surface ore was present at the depth that we expected to find it, um, we dug directly adjacent on the margins of these paths that, um, that we went to go investigate, found the surface ore in that location, and we assumed that... Um, sorry, I take that back. We did not find the surface ore. It was missing. And so we assumed that the surface ore must have been removed during the avalanche event. And so we decided this path was good to go because the surface ore was not present. And that was the target week layer. That's a, everything our brain was thinking surface ore that day. We dropped in. Um, I dropped in first and, you know, made a couple casual turns. And then right at the breakover in the terrain, I, I threw a bit of a, a hard cut and a slab broke three or four feet above me and took me down and um, I was lucky enough to hop off the slab, grab into the bed surface and watch the thing run. It was a really small avalanche. It was maybe, um, I don't know, 30 feet by 50 feet, something like that. And, and about 18 inches deep and, um, a very small proportion R1, you know, relative to the path. It was, there was a much bigger path, very small avalanche within the path. And, um, I, looked at the avalanche and realized that what had actually happened was we were on one of these repeat performer paths and suddenly I'm in the middle of the path and boom, the mistake was super clear. The old avalanche and the new avalanche were repeat offenders on these early season weak layers. It wasn't a surface whore issue at all. Mm. And we'd been led to believe that it was surface whore. We assumed it was surface whore because of this report of how fast the avalanches were running. And in fact, it was just a very slippery bed surface with um, big depth hoar growing on top of the old bed surface. Mm -hmm. And so we were looking for the wrong weak layer. We made some assumptions. We dropped into terrain that if we had been thinking a different weak layer, we wouldn't have gone into, but we still charged ahead. And, um, so I decided instead of hiking out, I decided I was going to ski down the path and tuck into a, a safer area on the side of the path. And so I did, I skied down, cut in, and one of the other forecasters skied down towards me and he skied down next to my tracks, got to the next roll and same thing threw a cut in at the top of the roll, um, before committing over the roll and the path went, a good R3, um, much, much bigger avalanche spread across the whole terrain, um, crushed the valley floor. It was a, a total close call. Mm. Um, at that point, we put the tail between our legs, put our skins back on. The third forecaster waited for us up top, and we went home and talked about the lessons learned that day. And uh, fundamentally, you know, I think it was a trap that we totally set for ourselves by going in with such a strong assumption about the weak layer we were looking for. Um, so that was, you know, hopefully my biggest mid-career close call. Um, we went 
it was really fun. The next day, we went to the opposite side of the valley to go look across and gain a different perspective on the accident site, or not accident, but incident site. When we looked across, it was so obvious. Um, where we dug looking for this weak layer, when we were on the terrain, we couldn't see the difference in snowpack depth. Standing there where we dug and where the path was 10 feet away, we could not see the old flank when we were on the slope. It was kind of gray light. You're on a steep slope. There's a lot of variability in the snow surface. We couldn't see it. Standing on the opposite side of the valley on a bluebird day, looking back over at the mistake we had just made, the flank of the old path that had released, that then released again on us, was clear as day. Wow. And we were looking back and we were just like, what bozos? Like, I can't believe we dug five feet on the wrong side of the flank. Mm. And so the information we had gathered and the assumptions we made from it were completely invalid for the spot that we skied a short, you know, 10, 20 feet away. Mm. So it was a, it was a great eye opener. Don't make assumptions. That's a great story. Um, one thing I'm, I'm a, pretty big advocate of is being the devil's advocate right and i think there's there's a there's positivity in in dissent within your group right it, just for that reason and sometimes i'll bring up a point even if i don't think it's what's going on just to see like it's not fault us, us three professionals let's not fall into this trap like let's keep our eyes open and see the periphery and not that I'm saying I wouldn't have done the same exact thing yeah. that you guys did, but um, just something that I try and employ sometimes is being that devil's advocate. It would have helped. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, we walked in with such a um, an agreeable mindset that day. We we all assumed the exact same thing. Yeah. We'd all been watching. We'd all heard these reports. We knew. Of a surface or layer, we all assumed that was the culprit for this path, and um, yeah, we we really needed that uh, objective devil's advocate perspective that mm. day because we were we were all three singing off the exact same sheet of music, looking for the exact same evidence that we found that confirmed our theory that was not relevant for the avalanche path we were choosing to travel mm. in. So. Lots of good lessons there. Yeah, for sure. Well, Ben, I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down and chat chat on the podcast. It was great, and mm-hmm. I know I learned a lot and uh, about the area and 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 other things as well. Um, so at this point, we'll just raise a cold ten barrel beer and cheers. Awesome. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah, thanks so much. All right. Thanks so much for tuning in today. I'm willing to bet you enjoyed that one. I know I did. Thanks, Ben. Much appreciation to TAS Gazex. Next time you ski or drive by a Gazex or Obelax installation, don't only think about how these remote avalanche control systems are keeping you safe, but think about how much this company does to support not only this podcast, but the A3 and many avalanche-related workshops. Really the whole community. Thanks, you guys. 
Also, big thanks to Andy and the crew at Ten Barrel. I know you have many microbrews to choose from. Sometimes it's even overwhelming. Reach for the beer that helps support great causes through their Charity of the Month program or through 1% of their sales from the Pray for Snow beer going to protectourwinners.org or the support of this podcast or the amazing athletes they support. These guys are awesome. Please don't forget to rate and review us on whatever podcast platform you're listening to this show on. Thanks to Mike T for the amazing artwork of this show. Mike T, you the man. Music today was performed by Grammatic with the tracks Classical and Somebody in the beginning of the show and Anatech with Volley Principal at the end of the show. Tracks were made possible by freemusicarchive.com and the Creative Commons license or direct permission from the artists themselves. I'd like to thank the support of Keith and Chip from InterWest Insurance, a trusted partner since 1910. InterWest offers a full range of personal and business products and services. Check them out for all your insurance needs. All right, I'm out of here. I'm going to go ski between cappuccinos and amazing wine, not to mention the views. Until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there. Cheers. <laughs>